You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, we interview Simon Dennis of the Center for Transformational Practice about how to integrate the inner and outer work of creating powerful, meaningful, and long-lasting change. We have all of these structures, our, our justice system, our medical system, our foreign policy, that are still built around this kind of materialistic philosophy, this materialistic notion about the way the world works. And naturally, they turn out to be non-sustainable, non-life-affirming. But within this environment is rising up a uh, mainstream recognition of our degree of interconnectedness. This, too, is related to the love revolution. Hello, this is Sherry Mitchell for Love and Revolution Radio. Aguanu, Golazi Kowalba, welcoming greetings to you in my native language. I'm coming to you from my home in the Donland in Bunawabskeg territory, in and along the shores of the beautiful Penobscot River in central Maine. And as always, I'm joined by my luminous co-host, Rivera Sun, and our special guest, Simon Dennis. Hello, Rivera. Hi, Sherry. I've got change on my mind today. The personal, the social, the societal, the inner and the outer. And Simon, our guest, has a lot of experience in this. He is the director of the Center for Transformational Practice, a residential community and a nonprofit organization based in White River Junction, Vermont, where he lives. He's also interested, uh, we found out before this recording started, in alternative heat, including heat from compost. I'm very intrigued. I think that's an unexpected heat source that we could all generate. He uh, lives in White River Junction with his partner Elizabeth, an eight-year-old named Una, and a cat named Spooky. And Simon, welcome to Love and Revolution Radio. Thank you, Rivera. It's good to be here. I'm, I'm excited for our conversation today. Yeah. Hi, Simon. I'm so glad that you're able to do this with us today. I've been really excited for our listeners to speak with you after some of our previous conversations. Um, you are at the Center for Transformational Practice, which is a center where folks can go to advance sustainable culture through inner transformation. Why don't you tell our listeners what that means exactly? I guess there's the the whole conversation about the relationship between inner change, um, which we could refer to as raising of consciousness or uh, inner cultivation, and the outer change or the change that we need to take place in our society, we need to bring forward in the culture at large to advance towards more greater uh, sense of sustainability, greater justice in our culture. Uh, it's a very, very broad conversation with a lot of different facets, and uh, maybe we can begin to develop a general sense of what some of those are over our conversation. But uh, one of the things we focus on is the relationship between a group's ability to click together and to 
uh, cohere as a, a as a single collective unit, and the ability of that group to be able to then carry out some kind of intervention in the community that will have the result of making things better, as opposed to dusting up a lot of negative uh, responses and uh, uh, turmoil in their wake. That's that's one of the dimensions. Also, the uh, aspect of supporting practice for activists, um, cultivating templative lifestyle, cultivating some kind of personal practice as a means of supporting our own personal health and well-being so that we can carry out the work that we do. Those are are some of the things that it means. And then I suppose the third dimension is an inquiry into what does activism look like when we view this endeavor through the lens of an understanding of the primacy of consciousness. There's a lot there, but that's, that's, that's the basic framework that we use to understand our work is taking place at three levels, the level of the individual work that I do to cultivate my own consciousness, the group, the work that we do to cultivate our collective consciousness within the working groups that we engage with, and at the level of society, they can refer to that as transformational activism, the work that we do to be an uplifting influence in the collective consciousness of society or the community within which we live as a whole. So at the Center for Transformational Practice, you lead retreats and workshops um, and gatherings where people can actually start to practice, learn skills for, and integrate these different levels? That's correct. Yep. We've been doing uh, quarterly retreats, which coordinated with the equinox and solstice, the corners of the year. And we've also been doing other kinds of workshops uh, a lot of our work also has been oriented around convening convening the the sectors, the different aspects of the transformational movement in the surrounding community. So that involves things like bringing together clergy and faith and practice leaders around a conversation regarding personal and societal transformation. And that also involves bringing together activists to look at the way that we're carrying out activism around similar conversation and uh, the big plan for 2016 is to think about how we can bring these different subsectors, if you will, together in a gathering which will take place at the very beginning of October this year. One of the things that I find most exciting about the work that you're doing is that you're speaking to this process of bringing the transformed self into the work of transformational change. And that's so vital to this process because we all have to go through this transformative process in order to bring an engaged and informed mind to the work that we're doing to address some of these issues. And one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past that I think is really important is about expanding our view of citizenry, expanding our view of our place in these ecosystems that we all live in. And um, you guys include food, you include meditation, all of this ritual. And I would really like to kind of get into how you see from this transformative spiritual perspective, how do you see your connection, not only to the individuals that come to the center to engage this practice, but with the entire system that surrounds you there at your place in Vermont? I think that some of the message that comes out from the center here, the message about social change and personal change that we try to express, 
needs a certain kind of environment for us to be able to cultivate it. And one of the things that I found is that the effectiveness of our activism has a lot to do with the extent to which we can actually walk our walk uh, or walk our talk, as it were. So we also are spending a lot of time growing food. And the older history of this particular land involved some degree of industrial fabrication. So turning this piece of land into productive landscape uh, through hugel culture and some various different permaculture techniques and some conventional gardening to produce the food that we use in our retreats, to produce the food that we eat ourselves, we've been, we've been working on. So this is also goes along with some of the general workshops that take place in, this, uh, in the field of resilience building, workshops like how to turn your car to run on, on uh, biodiesel, how to build a rocket mass heater, uh, a variety of different things like this just for community members who are interested in increasing their own resilience and increasing their own independence, their own ability to provide for their necessities at the local level without being tapped into a global system of, of providing for needs. And that, I think, is to some extent the part of the basis or part of the integrity of our message is that uh, it's coming from a place of independence and coming from a place of working together to kind of provide for necessities. We've been working with uh, a lot with the Transition Town movement, and a lot of that effort had to do with resilience building, had to do with community building, had to do with skill building, as you, as I'm sure you've encountered, um, as a, a foundation, you might say, for the dialogue around uh, consciousness and change. Because um, obviously... There is a way of interpreting this message about consciousness and change that sort of has, it sounds like you could be letting people off the hook or saying, you know, go to your cushion and let the, let the world do its own thing. And of course, that's not the full message. When this world, when the, the new culture emerges, it will do so by means of the on-the-ground activities and efforts of, of all of us. So in order to short circuit that particular critique that sometimes arises uh, a critique which which is that it is not action oriented is uh, i think it's very necessary for us as people engaged in the transformational movement to also be very much engaged in the on the ground transformation of our own practices and our own activities and also engaged in organizing and activism aspects of in the community at large so these things all fit together, but the, uh, the, the main point is that the foundation of our own interest, of our own motivation, and of our own capacity to bring about change begins on the inside. Gandhi's ashrams also modeled this similar system of inner and outer uh, transformation, but especially with a lot of parallels to what you're doing in terms of growing their own food, spinning their own cloth. And a big part of what those ashrams were attempting to do was provide the inner training and the, the self-reliance that was necessary for an independence movement. And this concept of constructive program that Gandhi really initiated and coined the term for, of integrating these types of what might fall more under the category of resilience programs and classes and workshops and practices at your center, into the larger independence movement or self-rule movement of the Indians. 
Do you also have that level of integration in the various social justice issues that surround you, particularly the climate crisis comes to mind? Are you also engaged in more direct action? So this is this is uh, really the kind of central question. I think you've dived right into the middle of it, is the relationship between a consciousness-first approach and a more confrontational direct action approach. Now, I, um, for my own part, I have... Uh, leaned away from a more confrontational approach. That is to say, the, based on my own personal understanding about the way in which change comes about, I am hesitant or I am weary to, uh, wary that is, to enter into kind of an us against them dialogue uh, between the activists who knows what someone else needs to do. And so we focused much more on a build the new uh, approach whereby building community, building skills, building structures and uh, initiatives within the local community where we live that speak to the new culture that we want to create as opposed to engaging energies, uh, trying to put pressure on aspects of our society which are exploitative or um, uh, oppressive in one way or another, extractive. But to answer your question in short, the transformational movement has not engaged in the direct action movement, for instance, to stop the pipeline. Many of people who are involved with the center here are engaged in those efforts, and I have uh, respect for that approach, but it is not, um, it's not up the middle of what we're working to bring forward. Rather, we have been engaged in project, a project um, to plant fruit trees in public spaces. This has been ongoing. We've, pract- we've planted um, about 75 fruit trees through a, through a little initiative called Apple Corps, partnering kind of uh, the care for the fruit tree and the, in, the, in the public space in a way that that can be cultivated in such a way so as to kind of transform our relationship with the landscape. We're also deeply involved in a project to provide access to the river and build a p- pathway from uh, the road to the to the river that will be uh, hopefully be mostly wheelchair accessible if not completely if possible and but it's a very very dynamic dialogue it's a very interesting dialogue uh, that's going on between people who are engaged with the direct action platform for activism and people who are engaged in a community building or a more a more positive you might say approach i think that one of the most important things to stress uh, in regard to what you just said is that there really is no conflict between different engagements with this process. And I think that there are some people who really get into their silo of activity where they think that their particular place within this sphere of transformation is the most important place, that if you're not doing direct action, then you're missing the boat. If you're not doing transformational you know, um, practice, then you're missing the boat. But really, there's a place for everyone along this spectrum, and everyone is vitally needed. And one of the most important aspects, in my mind, is the building of the new. We have to certainly stem the tide of harm that's being aimed towards us. We have to envision and imagine new ways of being in relation with one another in the world. But we also have to actively build the world that we wish to inhabit. It's really important to understand that there are all of these different dynamics, there are all of these different elements, there are all of these different roles within this process. And every single one of them is absolutely essential. 
I want to kind of shift gears a little bit, and I want to talk about one of the tools for the transformational approach that you guys highlight, which is looking at this four-level analysis, which is based on the four-level model. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, that four-level model and how it you know, addresses physical, cognitive, motivational, and foundational um, kind of triggers and, and how that all comes together to give you an analysis of of your organization and how they can engage this process. Um, that particular aspect was something that um, pertains to a, a fairly narrow slice of, of what we've been up to, which is to say the organizational sector, the nonprofit sector, which is engaged in uh, service work, to be sure, but also is engaged in spheres of personal and social transformation, particularly in areas of addiction recovery, certainly uh, um, trauma recovery, that whole aspect of the nonprofit sector. And one of the things that we were engaged with and with a clutch of nonprofit organizations was that very often they had a mission that they would communicate to the, to the community at large which involved a lot of tangible and measurable outcomes of their work. But when you really got down to talking with them about what was the most meaningful aspect of what they were up to, they said that the foundation had to do with something which might not be as easy to measure. In other words, if they're working in a, in a sphere of housing and and helping people to move towards greater capacity to provide for, you know, navigate the, the process of acquiring housing for oneself, that the aspect of empowerment, which is harder to measure, and the aspect of a sense of, of a sense of feeling deserving, feeling worthy, I'm just taking one example here, was perhaps the essential ingredient that would dictate whether or not their efforts would take root or whether or not their efforts would ultimately create long-term change, long-term benefit. So again and again with different nonprofits in the sector, we had to recognize that even though the things that would come to the surface might be the measurable and tangible outcomes within their work, the things that dictated the longevity of their impact, the depth of their impact, and the degree to which they could really accomplish their deeper mission had to do with changes in the internal dimensions of the clients that they were working with. So in order to help organizations um, speak about these different dimensions and develop understanding of kind of causal pathways within, you know, the relationship between different, between the deeper change and the changes that the tangible measurable change, we developed a little bit of a rubric, a little bit of a structure that would go through first and foremost changes fundamental changes with regards to our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with the world around us and then translating through changes in motivation changing in changes in our core beliefs and fundamental aspirations changes in our knowledge and ultimately changes in our behavior this would fit into the inside out narrative of the transformational movement in so far as the change looking at the foundation of our just society or you could say the foundation of our healthy and supportive lifestyle as being one that is based on the in the deeper deeper changes within ourselves so that that particular piece of work i think is a very strong model it was getting a, a fair amount of traction at the time that we were bringing it forward but we have um it hasn't played a dominant role in our kind of social change uh, structure and outlook at, at this point 
But I do think that the nonprofit sector is a crucial player in the transformational movement, along with the kind of activism or the grassroots sector, along with our communities of faith, communities of practice. I do think the nonprofit sector needs a lot of support, and this goes also to the philanthropy sector, uh, to shift towards recognizing the importance of inner dimensions. You know, you mentioned one uh, layer of this is the working from the inside out. And one of the resources on your website is about the five characteristics of a transformational activist, uh, which include present a vision of, of a positive future, lead by example, keep it local, work from the bottom up, and work from the inside out. Is Are these practices just for the individual activist or for that a whole movement could engage in as well, whether it's a movement rooted in a more direct action approach or a movement rooted in a more constructive action, creating a new world sort of approach or a movement that in, actually integrates both? Are these practices that would work on every level from the individual to the mass movement for change? Uh, yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I think nowadays the uh, scope of the issues that we're confronting as a society at this point are so overwhelming in a way that I really do think that the agent of action at this point is the collective. Is that we're really in the era of collective agency, and the um, you know as was brought forward by the Occupy movement and the interest in decentralized leadership and no longer that was that was a movement that was not structured around the directives of a single uh, a single sort of leader kind of hub not that there wasn't strong leadership within it but that it was relatively diversified and i think that this indicates a way in which we are probably shifting towards an era of collective action so i think that those particular five characteristics of the transformational activist are characteristics that would pertain to, hopefully pertain to collective action, I think. They apply to what we are doing to engage with our community. And so the point about that is that's to some extent built upon a foundation of how we interact and how we connect with our immediate collaborators. You know, we sometimes say just the people in the room that are here with us engaged in this conversation to think about our impact on the surrounding community. And that those relationships actually are built upon our own inner qualities of dwelling and our own inner health. So again, surfacing here these three different tiers, the personal, the collective, and the societal. But uh, certainly the, those five characteristics are, are one articulation that has uh, applied to the societal dimension. Simon, as you know, our show is called Love and Revolution. And mm. we like to focus on the aspects of love that are being brought into the work. One of the quotes that I noticed that you had used in uh, writing on a paradigm for social change is this quote by Albert Einstein that says, we shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if humankind is to survive. And I think one of the things that we have been programmed to kind of adopt to our detriment has been this individualized lifestyle that is really kind of void of um, all of these elements of community that you're talking about bringing together at the center. And I was hoping that we could kind of shift the conversation now into an area where we really look at 
what are some of those new manners of thinking that we're going to have to engage in order to ensure our survival that are connected to our sense of oneness, collaboration, cooperation with one another, those types of things that are going to be essential to us being able to move forward in a more unified, harmonious way. Can you offer us some thoughts on that? Yeah, that's that's a, a, a great way of framing the conversation. And um, to my mind, the new way of thinking, I like to interpret Einstein's quote, the often quoted quote, in terms of the new way of thinking is being founded on higher thinking, that is to say, raised raising up of consciousness. So one of the ways that uh, we could characterize the raising up of consciousness is in a development of our thinking and our identity as moving away from our own kind of personal in the moment uh, search for personal gratification in the near term towards looking towards expanding our sense of community and of course this ego this so-called egocentric mindset in which everything is seen through the lens of what's in it for me how can this piece of news or this piece of this event be translated into something that can benefit me personally to expand that out to thinking about broader and broader community. And of course, a lot has been said about the way in which caring for those around us can itself be have a leavening effect on our level of consciousness. But going out from there towards caring about the surrounding community and thinking about kind of national consciousness, thinking and thinking about global consciousness, expanding our sense of community to go beyond even the people that are alive now, people that are the unborn generations of the future, people living in the third world or other species of creatures, all this going on and on to expand our sense of community to the, those, that, that group that we consider to be our own, that group that we consider to be those who we're personally responsible for and whose uh, destiny and future is something that we have an emotional connection to. So that's um, obviously if those kinds of motivations get stronger and that sense of interconnectivity with people and beings that are further from us, we're going to develop a very strong motivation to take the future into account, take the uh, the impact on people in the third world. So that's a, one uh, way that we can draw a connecting line between what we could call raising of consciousness, broadening of consciousness, and developing our motivation to create sustainable culture. And of course, this runs both along kind of community lines and also along temporal lines. So this broadening of consciousness that goes out into the future, ultimately to include the impact of our decisions on future generations, as was famously practiced by Abenaki Native Americans to go into the seventh generation Simon, I'm curious, a lot of the work that the Center for Transformational Practice does seems to focus on strategies and solutions that work in the long-term sense and in the short term, uh, but particularly preemptively, uh, particularly in the constructive department, the creating new systems department. How does the work that you do apply in a 
situation of tense conflict. So where there's not a lot of breathing room, where there's not a lot of elbow room uh, for stepping back and necessarily thinking in terms of higher consciousness. What about situations where people are already antagonized towards each other, already in conflict over the issues, say around police brutality or in a situation of severe economic oppression or where people are running people out of town for being homeless and on the street. How would some of these practices apply to those types of situations? I think this a similar dynamic applies because in a situation of dividedness in which one community's uh, interest could be seen as pitted against another community, basic question is how will this dialogue unfold and will it unfold in such a way so as to accentuate or build tensions or dividedness such that these two communities can ultimately consume their energies in in an oppositional stance fighting against one another or or can it unfold in a way which recognizes our fundamental commonality and even brings forward our sense of solidarity with one another ultimately our sense of love for one another how much energy is lost when when communities get pitted against one another for whatever reason? And so there's a certain kind of underestimation of the extent to which our destinies are tied up with one another um, that is uh, associated with that habit or that that tendency. So the whole tenor of dialogue as being a, a tenor of solidarity, support, recognition of our basic humanity, recognition of our need to provide for one another's needs, I think is, has everything to do with the extent to which a community is going to be able to come together. We'll be right back after a quick break for Station ID. In this week's Nonviolent Minute, we explore the work of Drew Dellinger, a poet professor, speaker, and to some, a mystic and a prophet. Joanna Macy says, Drew Dellinger is a national treasure. His poems for global justice bring light to these leaden times, helping us to see and defend the beauty of our world. His spoken word performances are exquisite in their intelligence and artistry, setting the political challenges we face within the grandeur of our unfolding universe. They ignite both our wonder and our will. In his book, Love Letters to the Milky Way, Dellinger takes us on a beautiful journey into the emerging new universe with all its glory and suffering, mystery and meaning. Here you will experience not only the call to oneness and wildness, you will also come to recognize the forces of injustice and greed that threaten to extinguish not only species, but the beauty of the world itself. Dillinger's poetry is both a call to beauty and a call to action. Here's a small sampling of his work from a piece titled Planetize the Movement. We are standing on a planet that is shooting through space, and it's time we started acting like it. Imagine nations with freed imaginations. It's time for she or he who sees the way to seize the day, seize the hour, Seize the levers of power and be the change. A new page, a new stage of drama. We need a movement of movements in the age of Obama, because not even a messiah could cure this empire. We need all of us to face all of the past 
and move past it. I ain't going to study war no more, except in history classes. Globalize liberation, planetize the movement. You can't stop the Earth's revolution. The snafu was the half-who would settle for half-truth. So I'm at it again with pad and a pen. Some things deserve to dissolve, and the last shall be the first and vice versa. You are floating on a planet. Act accordingly. Cryosphere melting, ten trillion tears to a vanishing planet. Earth, dream blossom of the cosmos. Silent universe, speaking in species. Every cell is intelligent. Cultivate bioluminescence. The breath is the bridge. Imaginations with freed imaginations. We are standing on a planet that is shooting through space, and it's time we started acting like it. Globalize liberation. Planetize the movement. You can't stop the Earth's revolution. A beautiful piece, and it's true, as we all know. We can't stop the Earth's revolution. We are all part of this unfolding and evolving revolution, and we are all spiraling along with it. In his piece, Hieroglyphic Stairway, Dellinger states, It's 3.23 in the morning, and I'm awake because my great-great-grandchildren won't let me sleep. My great-great-grandchildren ask me in dreams, What did you do while the planet was plundered? What did you do when the earth was unraveling? Surely you did something when the seasons started failing as the mammals Reptiles and birds were all dying. Did you fill the streets with protests when democracy was stolen? What did you do once you knew? So now I pose the same questions to you, listeners. What did you do once you knew? To find more of Drew's great work, go to drewdellinger.org. That's D R E W D E. L-L-I-N-G-E-R dot org. And now, back to our program with Simon Dennis. So how is this, as activists, and those of us who are uh, on the front lines struggling for justice uh, of oppressed populations, how is this message expressed? And uh, to what extent is it uh, bringing forth something that is non-polarizing, it does not demonize the opposition. It does not chase the opposition or the target audience, if you will, into the corner, whereby they're forced to marginalize the to this marginalize the uh, oppressed population in some way. So I think that the this a very similar dynamic applies. We're getting at a very deep conversation about the way in which change comes about and the role of pressure, the role of a a coercive stance. And I think that within the transformational movement, the point is not that there's no place for saying no. Of course, we must say no when communities are being oppressed and when exploitive structures are being cultivated and developed. The question here is fundamentally, how can we best say no? And what is the most powerful place within ourselves that that no can resonate with our audience and be and be heard and be responded to in a way which is non-oppositional, but rec- that, that the, the wisdom of it 
and the the basic uh, I guess you could say the basic love that's implicit in that in that no can shine forth. So that's that's one way that we can look at the relationship between these different approaches to building sustainable culture or just culture. It's not necessarily an either or situation. It's nothing is pure. We don't have a pure transformational platform. We don't have a pure um, confrontational platform or whatever. There's always a mixture of one to be uh, expressed through the other and the other to be expressed through the one, which is to say that even if you're working in a truly positive uh, platform, like let's say you are building a community garden by means of which the community can provide for food at the local level. This is freeing up people to uh, not be associated with buying food that might be shipped from, let's say, you know, Chilean uh, orchards or whatever, however, however that works. So there is an aspect of paving the way for protest in that insofar as we liberate ourselves from dependence upon structures which we might say ultimately need to change. What comes to mind for me when you're talking about this is this whole idea that goes back to this model that you talked about being connected to nonprofit organization. But really those things are at the core of determining what our motivation is for any type of action. And our our foundational beliefs turn into our um, motivating elements as we're engaging the world, no matter what it is that we're doing. Whatever we believe from a foundational basis actually transforms the way that we engage the world. And the key at the, at the heart of this is, to me, the development of a mindset, a psychological perspective that finds not only in the soul something that is similar to or identical with the divine, but something within the other that is similar to or even identical with ourselves. And that if we hope to be able to create real change, it has to be inclusive, which means that we have to look at that other from a place of uh, heart-based wisdom, where we're able to see our own needs and desires reflected in the needs and desires that the other side has and be able to find some compassionate understanding with the position that they're in so that we can find a point of interest convergence so that we can find the place where we can begin working together, making, uh, creating, I guess is a better word, the type of world that meets the needs of all of us in a way that doesn't continue to inflict harm on the planet and violence against other citizens and other species. And so when you get into those types of uh, discussions surrounding this whole idea of bringing that aspect of love into our decision making, I think that the importance of that piece can't be underestimated. It can't be overestimated. I think that it's just so vitally important to every single thing that we're we're doing. And it doesn't matter if we're engaged in the process of transformational change. I mean, to me, this is an entire paradigm shift in the way that we're thinking and the way that we're seeing the world and that it's really fundamental to us being able to achieve what we hope to achieve in relation to uh, transformational change. So 
my point is, is that um, we kind of downplay these aspects in some regards, but to me, it's really the key. It's really at the core of everything that we're hoping to create in the world right now. I, I love the way you say that, Sherry, and I, I, I really agree with you. And it's bringing up this thought for me that if we think about society as a, a big kind of overarching mind, the divisions within society are actually, they're analogous to our own dividedness, our own uh, ways in which sections of ourselves get divided off by means of the various traumas that we encounter. If if we think about the healing of society as in terms of a coming together and a healing of dividedness, then we can kind of recognize that an approach to social change, which doesn't emphasize the coming together, but is still sort of working within a, a, a comfort with dividedness, that is to say we might set up a situation to make it uh, too painful for a certain group to continue on in a certain direction, so it becomes too painful for them to do so or it becomes non-profitable for them to do so or whatever it is, and they change their behavior. Okay, great, we've won the battle. But what's the cost in terms of the dividedness of society as a whole? And I think sometimes as activists we can get into situations of fearic victories whereby there's an advance in a, in a certain regard, but the actual uh, overall health of society is not, has not benefited. I think that's such an important point that you and Sherry are discussing, Simon, that Sherry has brought up on Love and Revolution Radio several times that a lot of our activism is actually rooted in the concept of overthrowing or coercing uh, another member of our society or another group in our society to do what we want. And that this is actually part of the conquest mentality that is part of the the long-lasting, broken, wounded legacy of this continent and many other continents. And so we're really looking for a way to transform that as we transform our society. And we, Sherry and I have this deep faith that they're not separate, that we don't actually have to go and overthrow anybody or coerce anybody. I would say that there there is an element of the work of social change of really making sure that you're not just being um, naively nice as you're going about this work, not just hoping and praying that someone will have a conversion of heart, but that you're actually rooting your movement or your actions in two things. One, holding open the hand of reconciliation, as Kingian nonviolence would say, and two, making sure that you and your movement are finding ways to strategically stop your cooperation and the cooperation of society with the injustice that's going on, that you're actually removing your participation, your complicity in that, and you're opening opportunities for other people to also remove their complicity and instead put your cooperation and participation into the world you actually want to see. So I wanted to ask you uh, a very particular question that kind of springs out of this. The very first characteristic of a transformational activist is to present a vision of positive of a positive future. And you've spoken a lot about the ways in which we prefigure that, how we live our lives, and that actually is the second uh, characteristic, lead by example. 
And we've also spoken about the capacity of direct action and nonviolent action to say no, to become a holding action to the worst of the injustice. But I believe that nonviolent action and social change making through nonviolence also has the capacity to assert the yes. And a great example of this is the lunch counter sit-ins of the civil rights movement. They went into the lunch counters, they sat down, they asserted the yes. They presented the vision of a positive future using mm-hmm. direct action. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? Do you think that's an untapped potential for our social change movements? Well, absolutely. And I think that what you're, what you're bringing forth here is that the, the yes and the no, they're in dynamic relationship with one another. And to some extent, they're always present. For our no to, be, to have full integrity... We can't be dependent upon those structures which we're trying to change. That is to say, to say no from the depth of our being is a practice which involves all of our activities and lifestyles. And so in order to say no, we also need to be creating alternative means of supporting ourselves that are not totally dependent upon the military-industrial structures and, and means of production. In order for no to be potent, there has to also be a component of of building the new and and, and ushering in the new. And I think that the reverse is is also true. For me, the um, example of the the cafeteria sit-ins of the civil rights movement are a very powerful example of painting the picture of the future that we want to see. Uh, And at the same time, protesting a structure that that has become you know that has become no longer tolerable this is a beautiful example of showing the way in which it's simultaneously both a yes and a no i think there's some great examples of the converse of what you were just describing that when we say yes when we make these constructive actions constructive programs when we build out new systems there is generally not always but generally a moment where our new system has grown to the outer limits of possibility within the confines, the constriction of the old system. And at that fertile edge, at that shore's edge of change, is we're saying no to the old system and the, these tactics that can be more confrontational or they can be um, standing up, breaking out of old systems, old patterns, carve out the the space for the new system to grow it's very much like planting a garden and making sure that you know the old um crop from last year is pulled out by the roots and the new crop has space to actually come in yes and and this aspect of clearing out the crop from last year i wonder to what extent in the thinking of you guys now there's so many questions that i i have for you but I wonder in your thinking to what extent there is a role of collapse as a reality that we need to take into account as agents of social change. By, by collapse, I mean the way in which a structure which has become outdated, which has become kind of non-supportive of energies of life, has a way of collapsing of its own accord. And there's certainly been a lot said on the subject of the way in which these forces could be acting on the U.S. economy in certain ways. Sometimes I feel that the presence and the threat of large-scale collapse is so strong at this point that it may be that the necessity, as collapse comes closer, the necessity for building those structures, which we're going to be able to rely on afterwards, goes up. 
and the necessity to engage our energies to um, change activities or behaviors. It was really, we're in a situation now where the changes that need to take place are so dramatic, right? In order to live, in order to live in a, a lifestyle which is which is you know, honoring life on Earth, which is sustainable, which is fair and equitable, the change of the American lifestyle is we have to practically change by a factor of five, right? We're, we're about five-fold what we need to be in terms of consumption. So the, the changes in our, in our patterns of life are so dramatic, and the imminence of the end of the, the wholesale end of the, of the current structures, I think, are so imminent that for me, the, the shift towards fighting against, fighting against existing structures and towards building those structures which will actually be able to sustain us has, has shifted a little bit. So I guess I just, my question for you guys is what does, what does collapse and the, and the potential for collapse say about how we position ourselves as activists? When I think about collapse in regard to what's happening in the world today and in regard to the work that we're doing, Revere and I have had a number of heart-to-heart talks about how that should come about and what it should look like. So what comes to mind for me is thinking about a natural life cycle. That collapse to me is the end of a life cycle. It's about a process or a way of being or a paradigm that's reaching its end. And I think that this mass consumption paradigm that we have been living in has been being artificially sustained. Mm. It's not being allowed to reach its natural end. That collapse to me is like the final breath, that dying breath, that last sigh uh, as one exits their body and having been present when several people that I love have passed on, being able to witness that. It's a really profoundly peaceful and beautiful and reverent experience where you're allowing that to come to an end in a way that honors the life that it had. And I think that we can do that with these structures that we have. We need to allow this crazy, capitalistic, overconsumptive model to reach its natural end. And we need to be able to stop the activities in a humane way that have been artificially extending its lifespan. And so how do we do that as we're moving in a direction that's more life-sustaining, life-affirming, life-protective, is to simply dissipate our energy. It's simply what you know, you and Rivera and I have all been talking about. It's about withdrawing our energy, withdrawing our resources, withdrawing our support, withdrawing all of the artificial means that are extending this lifespan that actually is eating away at the ability of all others to survive. And so we need to be able to do that in a way that doesn't conquer and overthrow. This collapse to me is a gentle dissipation. It's just about us withdrawing all of our support from these systems that no longer serve us, that have lived beyond their expiration date, that are now giving us as living beings an expiration date. And we need to be willing to breathe life into what's new that new way of being, that new way of engaging one another and the rest of creation that's life-sustaining and life-protective. And we could have a really big conversation about that and go really deep down the rabbit hole. Unfortunately, we're running out of time. Mm. And so, Simon, 
what is it that you would like to leave our listeners with as we end the program today? What words would you like to share with them? What challenge would you like to pose to them? Or, or question would you like to ask them to, th- to consider? Well, Sherry, I think th- there's one theme that has been relatively not touched on. You mentioned it very lightly at the end there is this notion of uh, of paradigm shift. And, you know, along with consciousness shift, I think the we as 21st century beings need to recognize the extent to which the foundation of our worldview has been in a period of transition. And what I mean by that is that the notion of this world as being fundamentally built out of matter out of built out of the kind of the material building blocks the the material entities that we see around us has become i think in the 21st century has become an outdated notion and we have all of these structures our our justice system our medical system our foreign policy that are to some extent still built around this kind of materialistic philosophy this materialistic notion about the way the world works and naturally, they turn out to be non-sustainable, non-life-affirming. But within this environment is rising up a uh, mainstream recognition of the, the primacy of consciousness. And, and along with that is a recognition of our degree of interconnectedness. This too is related to the love revolution insofar as it is our interconnectedness, which is the foundation of our love for one another. It is our interconnectedness, which is the foundation of our ability to work together. And this recognition and an understanding of the world, which is is based on this, I think is also the basis of now of our ability to survive as a, as a culture, survive as a human race. This shifts our responsibilities dramatically, whereas... In previous centuries, there was to some extent a personal responsibility to do what you need to do to advance yourself towards recognition of our divine origin, recognition of our unity of creation. But today, that responsibility has become responsibility to one another, responsibility to the planet. And, uh, and I think that it puts leaders of faith and practice it puts uh, people engaged in any kind of spiritual endeavor, spiritual transition, into brings them forward as being something which is fundamentally speaking to our historical moment. That's a very joyful aspect in a way because what it does is that it brings together our innermost yearning and our deepest responsibility to ourselves as human beings and our outermost you know, uh, recognition of ourselves, uh, the need to be global citizen, the need to be uh, supportive members of the community around us. It brings those two things together in a way which I think is unique to this historical moment. So it's, it's, there's a wonderful opportunity in all of that to be less divided beings, less pulled in two different directions, trying to do what you need to do for the outside world, trying to carve out a little time to do what you do for the, your inner world, but rather to recognize that, you know, these two worlds are one. And, and in this day and age, what we do to serve one also serves the other. So I guess that would be by way of closing thoughts to this discussion that I would 
that I would bring forward. Well, thank you so much for that profound closing thought. It's a really wonderful one. I just want to make sure our listeners know that we are talking with Simon Dennis, who is the director of the Center for Transformational Practice located in White River Junction, Vermont. Simon, if people want to check out the programs, the workshops, the uh, blogs, the articles that you have at the center, uh, where can they find out more about what you're up to? Our website is transformationalpractice.org. Uh, so that would be one place to learn uh, to learn about. Certainly, that website will include an email address for how I can be contacted, and I'd certainly be appreciative of any um, any outreach along those lines. Be happy to add people to a newsletter that goes out. Great. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Love and Revolution Radio, and thanks for being part of this love revolution. This week to our guest, Simon Dennis, and a thank you to my ever-insightful co-host, Sherry Mitchell. Our theme song is Love and Revolution, with words and music by Diane Patterson and performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. And we don't want to close the show without mentioning that the music in the middle section around the Nonviolence Minute was by Galen Goodwill. It's just a little snippet of a fabulous song of hers called Stillness from her Lovers of Wisdom CD. You can find the entire track at www.galen.com. And I'd like to thank my brilliant co-host, Rivera Sun, for another engaging and illuminating conversation today. If you enjoyed this show, you might also enjoy some of the things that I post on my Facebook page which can be found at Sacred Instructions, also available on the Love and Revolution webpage and on the podcast. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program that you can have aired on your local radio station. All you have to do is ask them to broadcast it. You can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on Rivera Sun's website, www.riverasun.com. And we are Love and Revolution Radio on Podomatic, Stitcher, and iTunes. For Love and Revolution Radio, I'm Rivera Sun. On this week's show, we brought up the concept of collapse and how to help our outdated, antiquated, and destructive consumer capitalist society gently collapse so the brimming new world of a life-affirming society can arise. Look around, listeners. See if you can find one more way to gracefully let go of the old and let in the new by the time we talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.